One parallel that our uh, culture has with the book of Revelation uh, is uh, political cartoons. Now, uh, political cartoons, what they do is they employ imagery that's common to all of us, and they communicate a message that we're able to understand through the images. So this week I looked at some political cartoons uh, just to, to try to gather what uh, types of images are common in them. And if you look at things from the era of World War I and World War II and even the Cold War, and this is somewhat true even for today, uh, often the United States is represented by an eagle. So you'll see an eagle, and that's supposed to represent the United States. Or sometimes Uncle Sam will be represented specifically for uh, the government. And also during World War II and the Cold War, in a lot of cartoons, bears were employed to represent the ideals of communism. So usually it would be, you know, an eagle against a bear or something. And then uh, in one uh, cartoon I noticed that featured uh, President Lyndon B. Johnson, so this is, you know, from quite a while back now, he was dressed like a cowboy, and he um, was... Well, the point is, he's dressed like a cowboy. Now, the, the cowboy reference, I think, and I don't know that much about Lyndon B. Johnson, but I do know he's from Texas, and it seems to me he had this sort of cowboy, no, uh, not going to put up with anyone's uh, situation. It's going to be my way, cowboy image. And that's just being employed, and you see the cowboy image, and you see his face, and you know who it is. And then you see the, the message is trying to be communicated by the cartoon. But what's interesting about these cartoons is if anyone from a different history, time period, saw one of these, they would have no idea what it means. Now, even for me, when I was looking at some of the older cartoons, I couldn't decipher who the people were in them or what the events were being referenced by the cartoons because I'm already too removed from those to know their specific purpose. But whenever we see these in the newspaper today, like we know exactly what they're referencing. So this is very much how Revelation works. It's images and visions that are common to the people of the first century that they would understand when they heard it. But for us, because we're not part of that time period, we cannot easily connect the dots on what the images represent. And now today we begin John's vision. We begin to look at what he witnessed and then recorded in what is called the Revelation, which is an uncovering and a prophecy and a letter to first century Christians. So if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to be looking at uh, 4 and 5 as we continue to unpack and take a look at this book. And it will be on the screen here, so you can follow along. But this is the beginning of John's vision. Now this beginning vision is going to give us a reference point to understand everything else that comes afterwards in the visions in this book. So it's really important that we look at this and grasp what it, it's telling us. So starting with chapter 4, verse 1, it's up here on the screen. This is how it starts. It says, After this I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what, you must, what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit 
And there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne sat seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So this is how John describes this opening vision. First, we notice that the voice that speaks to him is the same voice from chapter 1. This is the voice of Jesus. Also in chapter 2 and 3, this is the same voice that gives the message to the seven churches. So this voice calls John into heaven. The door is open for him to enter the, the throne room of God and to enter the realm of God. So John is seeing what is happening in the world from God's perspective. That sets the stage for this entire book. Remember, we said that Revelation is a behind-the-scenes look at life. And it's behind the scenes because John is being given a unique perspective from the throne room of God to see how he is interacting with the world and how he's going to bring about justice and judgment on the world because of the rebellion against him and how he's going to bring hope and restoration and reconciliation to the people of the world who are waiting for him to recognize the injustice done against them. And so this is what John sees. And then the voice says that this must soon take place. And uh, that's going to be something we're going to have to wait for next week because then we begin to see what is in store. Now, this idea of the throne, when we read these, and it's not up here anymore, that's okay because we're not going to actually look at the different descriptors, but when you look at the description of the throne... That is just an example of apocalyptic literature. So those are the types of images that it's hard for us to understand, but it's communicating a message through image for the audience. And then there's also the 24 elders, and this is, again, something that we're not quite sure what it actually means. We think it could refer to the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel representing them. It could represent other things, 24 hours in a day. There's different... uh, estimates about what it's about. But in a moment, we're going to see what's important about the elders. But John is in the throne room of God, and he has seen what is happening on earth from the, thro- the perspective of God. Now, continuing in verse 6, this is how it continues. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. This is, again, the apocalyptic literature in the language. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like a fox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under its wings, day and night was not, was never, day and night they never stopped saying. Now let's wait here before we look at what they're going to say. Now, this is an example of people will read a passage like that, and they'll try to figure out what those creatures represent. They'll try to say, well, what in in our world do those mean? 
And they, try to, they come up with all kinds of crazy things. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's creating images in our mind. Now, there's four creatures. Three of them look like animals, and one looks like a human. What is this supposed to represent? It's not an actual reality in the world. It's not something we can pinpoint. What it is, is it's representatives of the creatures of the world. They're in the throne room of God, representing us and the other created creatures in the world. And now this is what they're doing. They're singing constantly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will you were cre- they were created and have their being. So right here we see what are the elders and the creatures doing? They're worshiping God. The eternal perspective from heaven is that the creatures of the world were created to worship God. Now if these 12 elders represent, some think they represent these other spiritual beings like Elohim and angels. But they also join in the worship. Because everything in the universe that's been made by God is to worship Him. Because He alone is worthy of worship. So this is the message that John is communicating to his people. Now what they hear in that, now this is where it becomes important. What they hear is that God alone deserves our worship. He alone has created and is worthy to be worshipped and praised. Now remember, first century Christians, they're faced with this challenge of, are they going to follow Jesus or are they going to follow the emperor? This is a direct statement against the emperor in Rome, who said, I need to be worshipped as your God, because I am your great benefactor who has given you peace and given you this, this place to live that has brought you so much wealth and prosperity, so you need to worship me. And John is showing us the true God who deserves worship, and it is our God who is in heaven And as we will see in a moment, the one who has sent his son Jesus to free and restore and judge the world. So today, it's important for us to understand that only God deserves our allegiance and our worship. No government, no leader, no celebrity, no ideology can replace God and his kingdom. So this is a statement against any possible place that we can give our allegiance in the world. Whether that's some sort of ideology about getting happiness and having success in life, if that's some sort of self-help ideology, whether it's a desire to own as much stuff as possible to make yourself happy or to have wealth, whether it's some sort of political ideology that you think will bring hope in the world, the only person who actually deserves our allegiance is Jesus. And the only kingdom that we should be committed to is the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is the true king. 
and our Father sits on the throne over all things. So this is what John witnesses in the throne room of God. But that's not all he sees, because continuing it in verse chapter 5, verse 1, he goes on. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, and writing on both sides, well, with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw the mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Let's stop there for a moment. So now we move on and John notices that there's more to this vision. The, the person on the throne is holding a scroll. And one of the attendants in heaven says, Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? Come forward. And John sees that no one is worthy. Now this scroll is connected to this legal document in the first century. Now, if you had a legal document, or if it was some sort of divine command, it would be, or not a divine command, but a command from the emperor, it would be sealed, the scroll would be rolled up, and it would be tied with strings, and then it would have wax on it that would then have the seal of the emperor, or whoever was a magistrate, whoever's ever sending that, would then stick their, take their insignet ring with their seal on it, and and put it into the wax. So if, that's, if that message was broken, if the seals were broken, you knew, if it was to you, that it had been tampered with. And it was only legal for the recipient to open the seals. Because only they were the ones who were supposed to be able to see that and read it and know what was in it. So there's no one worthy to open the seals. Now what is this scroll? Now as we go on, we're going to find out, and I'm giving us a little look ahead. The scroll on it is written that God's judgment against the world. Against the rebellion that's against him. So who is worthy to open and read God's verdict of judgment against the rebellion of the world? Well, John says there's no one worthy. But all of a sudden, this is what the angel says. Then one of the elders said, or one of the elders, I'm sorry, not the angel, he said, Look, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this right here, a couple references to the Old Testament. Again, these are images that if we didn't know, we'd be like, well, who are these people? Who's the lion of Judah? That's a reference from Genesis chapter 49, I think, the blessing that Noah, or that that Isaac gives to all of his sons. Judah is said that you have a lion in your tribe who will rise up and bring victory to Israel. The root of David. This is a reference about the Messiah who will come. Both of these are connected to this idea of the Messiah. Jesus is the one worthy to open the seals because he has triumphed. Through his death and resurrection, he's defeated death. He's able to open the seals of judgment. So John looks, now you think he'd see a lion, right? Then I saw the lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Before we go on, we need to talk about this, because this is one of the most important images in the Bible. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. There's even a song about that that came out years ago, where we can sing about Jesus being the Lion of Judah. Lions are mighty 
the king of all beasts. They have power. They can rule with their authority. And Jesus has authority to rule. But notice what he, John sees when he looks. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb. Not only a lamb which is a weak baby sheep, nothing like a lion, but that lamb has been sacrificed and killed. So it's a lamb that has been killed. This is the central image of Jesus. While he had the power and the authority of the throne of God, he defeated evil through his sacrifice. And that is the image of revelation of Jesus all the way through. He's depicted as a warrior, but he comes as a warrior who decides to offer his life as a sacrifice. And he doesn't fight with swords, he fights with his words. Because he's already defeated sin and death. He already has victory. There's no need for anyone to fight. So the first century Christians who heard this message, for one, they're being encouraged to continue to submit and to receive the same sort of potential persecution and death of Jesus because it's through Jesus' death that he gains victory and only through our sacrifice of ourselves do we actually receive victory in the kingdom of God. And that is the call of all Christians as we follow Jesus. This is the central image of following Jesus, that he is the slain lamb, and we're called to follow him. We just read the story of the Passover. We're called to follow him into his sacrifice. Continuing, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So this is the lamb. He's at the center of the throne. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and looked, or he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they all were holding gold bowls full of incense, which were all the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. That's a direct call against the emperor. God's people will reign on earth, not Rome. And Jesus is king. That's a claim against every government today that thinks that they are the ones that get to decide what happens in their land. No, God has purchased, through the sacrifice of his son, the right to rule the world. And we, his people, are his kingdom. And we're called to follow him. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 
The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This peek into the throne room of God makes one thing clear. Only Jesus is worthy to judge the world. Why? Because he sacrificed his life. And through his death and resurrection, he was given victory over sin and death. He is worthy for, of worship. He is worthy to sit on the throne and to gather people from all nations to follow him as the true ruler of the world. So that is a statement against every government that has ever existed. Specifically the governments that line up with what we're going to see in the rest of Revelation is a call against Babylon. I said this last week. Babylon in the, in the book of Revelation and all of the Bible is an image against, of human rebellion against God. And Babylon rules in the day of Rome and R Babylon rules today because it is the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of Satan is calling us away from our allegiance to Jesus. And the only answer is to follow him who is the true king through offering our bodies as sacrifices to worship and follow him as the true ruler of the world. That is the message of Revelation, and that is the call. When John says, this is what's going on behind the scenes, you think that you might be helping yourself by following and participating in this emperor worship. But actually, this person over here, Jesus, our king, is the only true one worthy of worship. And only Jesus is worthy to judge the world. And he will judge the world and bring about justice and reconciliation for those who have rebelled against God and oppressed his people. Because he holds the scroll of judgment. For those first century Christians, it meant there was hope that there would not always be injustice. And this is why we're called to seek reconciliation in the world today as the people of God. So this opening vision, it sets the stage. All that John is about to see and record for us in the rest of his visions are from the perspective of God's throne room in heaven. It's a unique perspective into God's look at the world. Now from heaven, what John sees is that God alone is worthy of worship and that he plans to bring final judgment and justice to the world through reconciliation or through justice so that he can reconcile the world to himself and bring about the new heavens and the new earth that we hope for. And how does he bring the judgment, this judgment? Well, he's going to bring it through the victory of Jesus in his death and resurrection. Because only Jesus is worthy to judge the world. So this sets the stage for us as we look at the rest of the book. So if you want to continue to read along... Uh, next week, we're probably going to be looking at chapters 6 all the way through 11 or 10. And it's going to be just a couple snippets of grabbing from different places. Because what comes next is the impossible task of trying to understand all of the different judgment sequences that happen in the book. But what we must keep in mind is that God alone is worthy to be worshipped. And that because he is going to bring judgment upon the world for the rebellion of his people, he appointed Jesus as the only worthy judge of the world. And judgment's about to unfold, but this provides hope for the people of God.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your people. And we read this message from Revelation. And I think, first of all, it makes us a little uncomfortable to hear about judgment and to think about what that means and to think about all the images that we've ever heard about judgment and the different times we've heard people say that acts in our world are judgments against people from you. May you help us to take into perspective, for one, the way that you decided to bring judgment through your son's sacrifice. And may that give us a hint at your character, that you're not interested in bringing judgment through killing and victory, but you want to bring hope through reconciliation and sacrifice. May we hold that intention with the truth that you will bring justice upon the world because of the world's rebellion. May we find hope in knowing that the challenges of this world will not always be there because of your coming justice and judgment. May we come to see that some judgment is good and that not all things will be seen as bad, but some things will be vindicated and named as good and worthy of your cause. And may we continue to strive to be people who follow your son, who is the, the line of Judah, but also the slain lamb, who has called us to follow him through sacrifice, to offer our bodies and our lives to him in service, to be members of his kingdom, and to live with the hope of justice and reconciliation in a world that is ruled by Babylon. Heavenly Father, we ask this all in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.